I'll talk a little more about this next week, since these two episodes really do deserve to be uh, considered separately. There's a lot of variances between the two of them, uh, tonally as well as literally. But I have to admit, these two episodes, Homefront and Paradise Lost, rank among some of my favorite episodes of Deep Space Nine, easily in the top ten, or top five if you count them as one. Uh, while I have said before that Improbable Cause and the Die is Cast are like quintessential Deep Space Nine, and I stand by that statement, I really feel that these two episodes really managed to make Deep Space Nine something new. And I know that sounds like such a strange thing. So many of the creators and developers, even while they were still just drafting up the, the base plans for the show, were desperately like, we need to make something new, and we want to make something different. Something different, something new, something new, something different. It was the, the nonstop effort, and there have been so many efforts by Ronald D. Moore, by Ira Stephen Bear, by Rene uh, Echeverria. You know, everyone involved has constantly been trying to make Deep Space Nine as anti-TNG as possible. But to be 100% blunt... It wasn't until these two episodes that I feel that they really, truly, firmly succeeded at that. Truly made DS9 its own thing. Because there's no A plot, B plot in this episode. There's only the plot. And that's also true for the next episode. They also successfully make a complex situation. Without it being convoluted, they make it a true dilemma. And they don't preach about it. And they don't give any answers. This is a dark story. And a dark story that is very realistic. Or, if I might be so bold, very believable. And I like that. But again, I want to talk more about that next week because it's a little more relevant next week. Originally, funnily enough, this is supposed to end with the Vulcans leaving the Federation. And, you know, ah, and then we'll attack the, the Vulcans and we'll lead to a civil war. I, I gotta be honest, I don't see that. I'm kind of glad they decided not to do that. I really don't think that would have worked. And several people have complained about these episodes over the years. There's been uh, decent negative feedback about some of the characters, about some of the set design, about some of the budget restraints, because they were still, you know, this is in the middle of the thing. And several of the creators said they felt these episodes were very weak. As ever, I value your guys' opinion. I'm very curious what you guys think of this two-parter, of this and uh, Paradise Lost. For me, I think I've already given my opinion fairly clearly. Uh, there's a couple of little tidbits I'll be mentioning a little bit more going forward. One of the tiny little things I want you to pay attention to is there's a scene a little further into the episode where Odo is finally leaving and he's talking to O'Brien and Bashir. And he asks, do you want me to check up anything on you? And Bashir just says, no, no. And there's just a little bit of discomfort and awkwardness there. I point that out because as of this point in time, they had decided they were going to add some kind of tension between Bashir and his parents. We didn't know what that tension was going to be yet, but they had started sowing the seeds for what would become the Bashir episode. Um, I'm not sure when that is. I, that's, pretty sure that's season four. Let me double check here. I'm looking at the list of episodes. Yeah, it might have been season five then. I don't see it here. Yeah, there it is. Season five, episode 16. They were actually already starting to sow seeds for what would eventually become the continuation of the Bashir story arc. Very vague stuff, obviously. But by all accounts, this was deliberate. They just wanted some things there so they could work with it later, which is a good way to do improv. You mention something, even if you have no idea where it's going to go or what it's going to be, because now you have something you can call back to, or you could turn it into something else if you want to. Doesn't always work. <laughs> Sometimes you end up retconning things, and DS9's been doing the hell out of that over its entire run. But, you know, it's still something.
Anyways, so the wormhole kind of opens and closes and opens and closes. My first thought was, huh, you know, sometimes I wonder why the Dominion doesn't do exactly that, just to mess with people. Remember, one of the big things about the changelings, and I talked about this extensively back in the adversary, is the nature of how they could challenge the very substance and, and, and I hate to use this word, the very soul of the Federation. You know, the, the fabric that makes up the Federation. And just doing that kind of thing to mess with you. I know this is going to sound like a weird parallel, but think of it like being a GM for a Call of Cthulhu game. In other words, while you're sitting there, you need to come up with things that are really going to screw with your players. Nothing obvious. Don't have some guy show up and be like, brah, brains. No, no, don't do that. You do something where everything's completely fine, but every now and again, there's just a dog. And, you know, okay, you turn to the corner, there's a dog down the street. You're like, okay. And then they keep going, and they keep going. And if you, you know, it's lit later, they've gotten in a car, they've left to a next town. And, and as you're opening the door, you notice there's a dog on the other side of the room. And you just have little stuff like that, just, just to kind of make them go... The Dominion doesn't even have to be doing anything with the wormhole. They could just be triggering it and untriggering it, triggering it and untriggering it, which is funny given what we find out. Then we find out that Dax is messing with Odo, and apparently has been for the last year. Why? I know that sounds like a weird thing to pull out since Dax is this whole, you know, life, freedom, woo thing. But she also tends to be respectful towards others and others' preferences. She will try to get them to get out of their box, like she's been doing with Kira, and she tried with Bashir for a while. But the idea of her just basically straight up pranking Odo is just... I don't, I don't buy it, right? I, I can't see her doing that. Obviously she is. It's in the episode. It's just nonsensical. Clearly she's a changeling. Anyways... And Odo is, of course, really pissed off about this. This is the real reason this is in the episode. Because Odo likes everything to be exactly in its place. Right where it's supposed to be. Uh, I do, too, to an extent. I don't go to an obsessive degree with it. But uh, I think that whole thing is just there so we see Odo's preference for order, which is something we've established many times before. But you never know. Someone might never have seen this episode before. <sighs> then we find out that the Changelings have bombed a conference on Earth. Now, that's interesting. First of all, it has exactly the impact it should. For the audience, it's Earth. We happen to live here. And unless you're watching this in 2023, when we've finally gotten the space project going. So if you're watching this in space, hi. But back when I recorded this, we all still lived on Earth. And, well, it's easier for this to kind of hit home, more or less, literally, when it is hitting home. Especially in a setting as absolutely huge as Star Trek. The second point, though, is Earth is paradise. Now, I know I've talked about that before, and I will be talking about that again in this very episode. They actually straight up call Earth paradise in this episode. But I mention that because the Federation is not paradise. There are plenty of worlds in the Federation that don't have access to advanced technology, that don't have infinite resources, that still have crime, that still have external threats, that still have to deal with disease or terraforming problems or whatever. In other words, all the problems of life haven't been solved yet. But if you go all the way back to the core worlds, you know, especially Earth itself, all those problems have been solved. Now, one of the core reasons why I explain this is the idea of incremental infrastructure. To explain what I mean by that, I hate to once again go to video games as an example, but I swear this is a real economic principle in real life. Think about it like this way. You have X ability to build, craft, service, whatever, maintain, okay? So you start at your home, in this case, Earth. So they make Earth paradise. 
And that takes time and effort. And once they succeeded, then they start stretching out. Okay, well, now let's get the next nearest planet or nearest system. Probably Vulcan, if we're being honest. Because Vulcan is, by all accounts, paradise as well. Just paradise for Vulcans. And then we get the next planet, and so forth and so on, right? In other words, the Federation technically has the ability to make all of its planets paradise, but not like that. It takes time. It takes effort. This is the concept of throughput. Even if you have infinite resources, which they do, at least some of them, you still need to be able to get those resources to the destination. That's the throughput, right? So the idea is logical here that Earth would truly be a paradise, because it was the first place they finished. Then they moved on to the next one, and so forth and so on. But I swear this is related, because it's related for two reasons to this episode. First of all, it helps to explain why this is such a big deal. Because Earth hasn't had crimes. Earth hasn't had disaster. And by all accounts, the last time Earth was actually attacked on a military level was during the Romulan Earth War. Forever and a day ago. Like, literally centuries ago at this point. That's how far removed Earth is from any real damage. Now, the Federation has been in many wars since then, but Earth itself? Nah. -uh. That's also relevant because the last time, and they actually mentioned this in the episode, the last time Earth was really threatened was during Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. That was the last time there was a serious threat to Earth, and once that was dealt with, well, that was the end of that. Now, I bring both of these points up because it helps to establish why this is such a smart move on behalf of the Founders, but also at the same time, kind of shows one of the interesting aspects of intergalactic geography. Let me explain what I mean by that for a second. One of the things that they, several people mention is they can't believe that they've actually managed to get a damaging attack on Earth. It's so far out. It, I mean, how could they have possibly gotten there? But the problem is that mentality is baked into two-dimensional thinking. The idea that if I have a wall and some defenses and some soldiers, and you're on the other side of that wall, well, you can't get to this side of the wall. You can't get through all those defenses to my core planet, Earth. Remember, Earth is not really all that well defended. Like, they have one starship in orbit for the entirety of the episode, the Lakota. By the end of the, the next episode, they'll have two starships in orbit over their headquarters, right? But again, that's part of the nature of their thinking. They think that anyone trying to get to Earth would have to go through so much in order to get there. And there's a certain degree of logic to that, because they have sensors upon sensors, and arrays, and ships, and the mobile defenses, as, I, as I've referred to them several times, as well as static defenses. So it makes sense that, you know, just getting to Earth would be difficult, unless you're an infiltrator. And this is where their thinking really falls apart. I've mentioned this before, especially in The Adversary, but I really believe, and I mentioned this in The Way of the Warrior as well, but I really believe these people have no idea how to deal with a changeling infiltrator. It's probably noteworthy that multiple times when a changeling infiltrator is found out, it's by Odo. In fact, I can think of three instances of that right off the top of my head. Anyways... So, because an infiltrator doesn't need to go a long distance and go through a lot of defenses to get to your home base. They just have to follow the infrastructure. See, in full three-dimensional space, in an intergalactic setting, the physical geography matters for time, but that's it. Let me, let me, straight, let me try to say this another way. Let's say you have Earth and planet X over here, okay? Now, these two worlds are really far apart. Let's say you also have planet Y much closer to Earth. However, there's not much on planet Y. There's maybe one outpost and a colony, okay? So obviously, if you manage to chart a ship and get a ship to Y and then go to Earth, that'll be a relatively short journey. 
but getting the ship and getting there and getting the resources and getting over here and all that fun stuff, that's going to be a hassle. By contrast, imagine Planet X, which is way out here, is, is a major world. It's a trade hub or a military outpost or a science endeavor or whatever. It has tons and tons of ships going through constantly. It has a major, you know, it has a major spaceport or a major space station. And so going from Planet X to Earth would actually take less time overall, and, this is the important part, be much easier to accomplish, because there's such regular transit between the two. Real life has some parallels to this, uh, train station hubs, airports, that kind of a thing, but for the most part, it's the same general concept. The infrastructure is what de determines the real difficulty in transit, not the geographic distance. This is only true, of course, after a certain level of technological progression. You with me so far? All of this matters, because Deep Space Nine is at least moderately connected to Starfleet, and to Earth in particular. And all a Changeling would have to do would be get onto Deep Space Nine, which we know they've done, and then be able to get back to Earth, which, as I've already mentioned, would be much easier than otherwise because of the regularity of traffic. You with me? In other words, it's actually astonishing that the Changelings have taken so long to really start doing anything. If anything, I imagine the reason the Changelings have been you know, holding back, so to speak, is because they've been spending all their time investigating, learning, right? Just, all right, what's going on here? Oh, what's going on here? And figuring out the exact specific methods by which Earth is run so they can tear it apart. Now... In the, in the face of something more like an actual military invasion, this is a slightly different equation, because then you have to get a whole bunch of ships from point A to point B, and that's much more just transit time, as well as many other factors that go into that, like logistics and supply lines and all that fun stuff. But you get the point. Anyways. So, getting back to the episode proper, uh, first of all, Brock Peters is awesome. I really like his portrayal of Joseph Sisko. Even though I did like him as Admiral Cartwright, and I did, legitimately, I think he really nails it here as Cisco's father. He does an excellent job of the role and manages to be just enough charming while still being aggravating, while being able to muster up the kind of, I guess, outrage is the word I want to use, while at the same time never going into hysterics. He manages a very tight line, and the actor, again, uh, Brock Peters, does an excellent job of it. I want to give him special praise for that. I also want to give praise to the way Starfleet looks. It feels like they've uh, touched up the sets and the areas a little bit from back in when we used to see it in like season 4 and season 5 of TNG. Earth looks good, is all I want to say about that. Uh, so there's this little scene, uh, really quick here, where O'Brien, Bashir, and Quark basically are all playing along. I kind of like that. I like that Quark goes with them. and I, I, I like that O'Brien and, and Bashir are like, ah, you know. I like the idea of basically, well, it wouldn't quite be an MMO, but I like the idea of playing a persistent world in a holodeck. That you do a mission or two and then you leave because you got to get to work or whatever. But when you come back tomorrow, you're still at that point in the story, right? Like the story has advanced based on what you've done. Like That just really appeals to me in general. And thus, obviously, they have this ongoing narrative that they've been crafting, right? And, of course, Quirk would be aware of that and be on top of that and all that fun stuff. The one thing I don't quite like is the fact that Quark mentions how there was this horrible recession back in Ferenginar and how it was bothering him not being able to be there to deal with it as a way of relating to O'Brien and Bashir. O'Brien's reaction is, to be as blunt as I possibly can, rude. Like, aggressively rude. Like, I would turn to him and say, dude, if he actually did that in front of me. 
Now, I know that we're all supposed to look down on Korra because he's just a greedy Ferengi, but um, I still don't know why, and I definitely don't approve of that, and I never really have. At best, Cork was the greedy, stupid Frankie in Season 1. He's already well grown out of that. This is Season 4, guys. But on top of that, I have a feeling that O'Brien doesn't really appreciate what a planet-wide recession and mass inflation would do to an economic-based country because he's O'Brien. Smart guy, nice guy, no idea what economics even is. Yeah, anyways. <clears throat> So then Odo, you know, no one's going to be, oh, I don't think people are going to really welcome me at home. There's this really great line that O'Brien says, and I quote, because I wrote it down, no one can hold you responsible for what your people are doing. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I just found that so hysterical. I mean, that is so O'Brien, right? Even though O'Brien himself does have racial biases towards the Cardassians, as we'll discover in the TNG episode The Wounded, which is coming out at some point in relation to this episode. I've already covered it. And uh, and obviously, biases still exist. Prejudice, what does prejudice mean? It means to prejudge. It means to say, well, this is your fault, because they were doing the same thing. Clan mentality, line philosophy, blah, blah, blah. However you want to think of it, the very idea that no one would blame Odo just because he happens to be the same race, well, let's just say I wish life were like that and move on. So we get to Starfleet. Starfleet looks good. Cisco is promoted to head of Earth security. That's cool. Then... Then we get to the restaurant. I've actually talked about this quite a lot, believe it or not, when it comes to discussing Star Trek in specific and the nature of Earth as a paradise. Now, I've heard a lot of people disagree with this and debate this, but this is actually probably the Ur episode for really helping to explain exactly the nature of what kind of world Earth really is. Because Earth is a paradise. They have the ability to make a restaurant where they serve food because they want to. Joseph doesn't charge. He doesn't get paid. He doesn't have to rent the land. Now, he probably has to get some kind of permit to be able to have that land, and I'm sure there's some kind of bureaucratic process for assigning who gets what. But at the end of the day, that's just paperwork, not money, not ec economics, not currency, not post- or pre-state... Um, uh, oh, God, I lost the term. Uh... Post-scarcity, pre- or post-scarcity economics. In all of those cases, all it is is he has the building, and he has access to the resources, and then he makes a restaurant. Because he chooses to. Because that's what he wants to do. I, I don't have much else to say on this. I've commented on, commented on this so many times. But I just wanted to point it out especially because, if I could be blunt, of all the many things Star Trek has done that are interesting or fun or dynamic or whatever you want to call that, whatever word you want to use there, the good aspects of Star Trek, probably one of the things that has always stuck with me most is that this guy can make his own Creole cooking place, you know, you know Louisiana kitchen, because he chose to. Something about that appeals to me beyond words. The ability to just say, this is the career I want to pursue, and then being able to do so. Obviously, we are absolutely nowhere near that in real life. We're not even on the same page as that in real life. And for all the things that people look to in Star Trek that give them hope for the future, that's the one for me. So anyways, <clears throat> so the, they mentioned that his father's still recovering. Nice bit of continuity, actually. If you remember, Sisko actually had this line, uh, speaking of his father in past tense, this was several episodes ago, and saying, oh gosh, you know, I, I, I've never seen him so weak and all that. 
In this episode, we find out that he had actually recovered, although at this point, many of his internal organs have actually been replaced by artificial ones, but, you know, whatever. He's still alive, that's the important part. And then Nog shows up. Now, I like this. This is another kind of enheartening moment, because we find out that Nog is having trouble at the Academy, but not because he's a Ferengi. I like that. I like the fact that they that because it's it's so typical to do that, right? Oh, you're the new race around the, the academy. Screw you. No, apparently everyone's cool with the fact he's a Ferengi. No, the problem is he really wants to be part of Red Squad. He wants to be one of the elite. And as Nog himself mentions later on in the episode, he's got the grades to back that up. He just needs some kind of recommendation from a senior officer. He needs someone like Cisco to give him an in. Something about that just appeals to me. Again. You know, the whole hopeful future paradise, blah, blah, blah. So then there's this bit where they start talking about, you know, we need to start adding more security to Earth. Now, obviously the demonstration with Odo is very effective in its own right. But, well, there's no nice way to say this. There is no test devised that a smart man cannot outsmart. I believe that's roughly what Joseph says in this very episode. What I'm trying to say is... Security measures exist to keep out the innocent. Now, that may sound like a weird thing to comment on, but I learned that back when I started getting into network and electronic security myself, and it has proven so true. If you are sufficiently motivated, I've talked about this concept before as well, if you are sufficiently motivated, then the cost stops mattering. There is a way through and around every security measure that exists. All that matters is if you are sufficiently motivated and properly uh, let's call it backed, either in terms of funding or resources, assets or skills or whatever, in order to be able to get through that. That's all that really matters. And the changelings are definitely motivated enough, and they have more than enough backing. This is something that will be relevant in part two of this episode as well. But all I'm going to say right now is that I find the idea that they say our security measures have been proven very effective on Deep Space Nine to be laughable. We know for certainty that changelings have already infiltrated Deep Space Nine personally. We also have a fairly large amount of conjectural evidence that they have been infiltrating Deep Space Nine for some time for intelligence gathering purposes. I mean, you remember in The Adversary where both Odos flat out say, you remember how you did this one thing with this one thing just this morning? Remember, both Odos had access to that information, which means the Changeling had access to that information. And that's fairly small-scale information. Anywho, <clears throat> so... This is, just looking at my notes here, this is what I was just talking about. You know, blood tests, phaser screens, testing high-ranking officers, high-ranking officials, and their families. What's funny is that Cisco calls the line there. I find that strange in its own way. I know that sounds like a weird thing to comment on, but it almost feels like he should go all in or not at all. You know what I mean? If you're going to test people, test everyone. You can't tell me you don't have the tech for that. This is Earth. The one place where the Federation is at its most advanced, where they have access to the most resources and the most capability to use them. But then, then we have another scene, and I do like this scene. It's probably the one true advantage they actually have. They have Odo. Um, there's this scene where they start testing the phaser screens in order to see if they can force changelings out of their form. I really like the idea that they have Odo there and helping them with this, because if they didn't, they just have to guess. And they might never actually know if they are accurate in their guesses, right? Because after all, if you turn the phaser up too high, then you start damaging the stuff and people in the room. And that's not the goal. I mean, if you just wanted to destroy an entire room, we have ways of doing that. We can do that now, for God's sakes. 
then there's this bit, and I credit the writers of these episodes. They make it a point of having Nog and his whole Red Squad thing feel like a B-plot. That's all I'm going to say right now, because that really comes up in the next episode. But I like how they slide Nog and the Red Squad thing into the narrative at multiple points. Not just because it means Nog gets to be in the episode, which is great, but also because that gives us that tool, that narrative tool, already in place and ready to go when the next episode comes around. So, Cisco's dad is ill. He is still ill. He is still having trouble. It's almost it's it's almost too obvious for me to comment on, but I want to at least say something about this. The dilemma in this episode is security versus freedom. It's one of the oldest things that has been debated when it comes to human society. Um, the idea and and the the really screwed up nature of the security versus freedom debate is that it's almost universally accepted that neither side is always correct. That if someone is sufficiently motivated, like a changeling, let's, let's, keep, let's keep fictional examples here. Like if a changeling is sufficiently motivated to infiltrate Starfleet to do something, then having super high security is justified because of the amount of damage they can do. They've already done that at the Antwerp conference, right? But at the same time, the freedom side of the argument is valid as well. These people are effectively giving up their capacity to live in exchange for a safer existence. And I've talked about that debate many, many times as well. And it's just a little bit too easy for it to go a little bit too far. I mean, granted, we are used to looking at the Federation as the good guys and trusting them, but you can't tell me if they just maintained these kind of security measures all the time that this wouldn't eventually lead to problems. There are some more pragmatic and cynical members of Starfleet that would at some point or another probably try to actually take advantage of this type of a situation, even if they're doing it for what they believe to be a good cause. So. <clears throat> this is how Joseph Sisko's illness kind of ties into this. He is sick, he is dying, and he knows it. And he talks about how he doesn't want to go in for the test, he doesn't want to take this medicine, and he doesn't want to get all this blood work done, because all that's going to do is elongate his existence. He knows those risks, but he has chosen to accept life, although at more brief, in other words, the freedom side of the argument, keeping in mind that he will suffer for that, knowingly and willingly, and that his life will be terminated earlier than his existence would have. Make sense? Now, what I also find most interesting is that even though Joseph keeps to this, has made this choice as of now, he's still debating it. And as his father and as his, excuse me, as his son and as his grandson both bring these up to him, he starts to admit more and more that he's not really sure about his choice. That'll be another thing that'll be resolved next episode. But you can see the parallel there. Because there's no right answer, is there? Take more care of yourself. Well, then I'll enjoy life less. Now, I know what you're saying. Oh, that's greedy. Well, I don't agree. One of the things I've fought against my entire life is the idea that enjoying life is something that shouldn't be a good thing or a, man or, or a, a need. That it should be classified as a want. And I don't like that mentality. If all life was, was eating, drinking, sleeping, and that's it, then what the hell's the point of it? I have been a firm believer my entire life in the idea of purpose, of enjoyment, of satisfaction, and the idea that life should be worth living. I know that sounds so strange to say that, but it's one of those weird things that I'm sure at least some of you listening to me right now understand the dilemma that I myself have wrestled with, right? That life should be worth living. 
It doesn't, it isn't necessarily, and there's always dark times in our lives, but it, for God's sakes, that's the ideal, and more, the, more to the point, it's not just some intangible fantasy ideal beyond the horizon, but it's a tangible reality that should be. And this is the idea that's being posited by Joseph Sisko. But even he isn't sure, just like I'm not sure. So, there's the Admiral Infiltrator scene, where there's a changeling, you know, pretending to be Admiral, uh, God, I can't think of his name all of a sudden, Leighton? Yes, Admiral Leighton, because Robert Foxworth, I remember that. And um, it's funny because... I give credit to the to the actor, uh, Mr. Foxworth. He actually does a good job of basically portraying someone else. This is actually interesting to me because it also means that this is once again their greatest advantage. They would have never found out about him, I almost guarantee it, if not for Odo's presence. And yet, they are so antagonistic towards him, and there's such actual disdain towards him, that the, despite the fact that they are professional changelings here on an actual mission to infiltrate Earth, he just can't help needle him. He does it quietly in his own right, but he says things that are almost actively antagonistic, deliberately trying to provoke him, and he refuses the handshake as Odo forces it on him, and then finally he reveals himself. Because, well, as I've discussed many times, the core mentality, the core philosophy and belief that the Founders hold true is that the Founders are what matters. All other variables are expendable currency to be spent in service of the Founders. The very idea that Odo killed one of theirs is something they just can't... That's basically the worst possible crime that can exist for them. And again, as such, it would taint every one of their interactions with him. It's worth noting that no cha other changeling tries to go anywhere near Odo for quite some time after this, if you're paying attention. Um, and I think that's at least partially why. So there's this wonderful bit. This is really great bit, actually. You know, all families must submit to blood screening. They, that, that order was given at the beginning of the episode. Very reasonable sounding. All, order, all families must submit to blood screening. So Jake takes it. Cisco takes it. And then Joseph says, I ain't doing that. If those guys are either going to sit down and get a menu or get out of my thing. And Cisco says, get these men a menu. And you can just, you can just feel the ire coming off across them. And the guy's like, uh, sir, I'm not sure. You're going to do this right now, Winston. I recommend the shrimp. It's, it's, it's a really great scene. But it's all the more powerful of a scene because this is the down-to-earth personal perspective on the threat that I already talked about back in the adversary. The nature of how the changelings can affect or change the very fabric of the Federation. Now they even say that flat out in this episode. Odo mentions that it's that nature of trust and mutual respect, understanding and cooperation. I forget exactly how Odo phrases it. Um, that That's what makes the Federation the Federation. In other words, and this is how this comes back to that security versus freedom, you know, existence versus life argument, if the Federation were to lock itself down to the point where it might be considered secure from the Dominion infiltration, then it is arguable that it would no longer be the Federation, because the very nature of that fabric that makes up the social network that is the Federation would be so thoroughly altered that it would be the Federation in name only. Now, I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. Again, the episode makes it very clear not to lay judgment on this one and not to say which is right or wrong because we see the active results of that infiltration and the damage that they do. But this scene shows that down-to-earth, one individual and one other individual personal level of what the destruction of that fabric means. And both actors, 
Avery Brooks and uh, and Brock Peters both do an excellent job of portraying two people who have basically lost their connection of trust, love, and understanding between each other because of fear. Because of fear of the whole changeling situation. And there's this great bit where Joseph is off cleaning his hands and he comes over and there's almost this shock in his voice. You actually thought I was. You really did. And Cisco is just like, I... I, I <sighs> And then one of my favorite little bits, Joseph Sisko, who I remind you is angry, not really in the wide of his head, and about to have a minor stroke, off the top of his head comes up, comes up with a way to circumvent the blood screening. Just right there, like that. Now, again, as I've kind of pointed out already, we know with total certainty that those changelings have already, before this episode, found out a way to circumvent the blood screening. And I just find that very interesting because, again, we, as I said all the way back in the adversary, they are presuming that the blood screening is the baseline, that this is the absolute from which they can derive logical deduction. But it isn't. Not only, again, has it been proven not to, to us, not to the, not to the characters, but he just came up with an idea just like that to circumvent it. Something about that moment is really powerful for me because it helps to emphasize how you can't be absolutely secure especially not against things like them. So then the power grid goes off. That's impressive, taking out the power grid of a planet. I mean, I've talked about this a few times before, and one of the things, one of the most comments I get when I say something like, how do they do this with the whole planet? One of the most comments I get is that most planets aren't fully 100% developed like Earth is. And that's a totally valid comment. But this is Earth. <laughs> For once... They actually knock out the power grid of a whole planet, and that is exactly as impressive, as terrifying as it actually should be. This leads to the state of emergency. Uh, actually, one smart thing that I do like, they, like, they use the Lakota as like a, a relay point, which is smart. It's the kind of thing that Enterprise should have been doing with its shuttlecraft for many, many episodes. The idea of using the asset you do have that's still functioning as a way to relay and get around and, and connect and coordinate communications, transportation, etc., right? That's good. I do still once again wonder why there's only one ship around Earth, especially during what is basically a state of emergency, but whatever. And then they declare martial law. I also like the power of the argument. The Admiral, Sisko, and Odo all give very strong, very powerful arguments for why martial law should be declared, and all of them do so. And the great part about it, and again, this goes back to what I've been talking about this whole time, is that just like the freedom versus security debate, well, they're right. They're not, they, they are also wrong. Again, there is no truly correct choice here. That's the whole point of such a dilemma. But there is val, there's validity in their argument. It's not like they're making crap up. It's not like they're lying to, to push an agenda. Well, okay, you know what I mean. And it's not like they're saying this because they want to grab power. It's not like they're saying this because they're greedy. It's not like they're saying this because they're evil. These are legitimately well-intentioned individuals who really believe that this is the best thing to do in this situation. And, again, just like freedom versus security, they're right if you were to presume security is the correct argument. One of the things, I wanted to save this for the end here. One of the things that was mentioned by Rene Echeverria in particular and several, several of the other people who worked on the, these, this two-parter is they wanted the audience to be on board with the increase in security and the increase in militarization. They wanted the audience to think of the idea as martial law being a good thing. And thus, if you pay attention, 
a lot of the lines and a lot of the directing and camera work slants it so that this is the heroes trying to tell the obstinate bureaucrat and, and the, the, the foolish people around them what is necessary to defend them. That's how a lot of the episode is slanted. And then the, very, the episode ends with the shot of troops beaming into the streets. And thus we can kind of see how there is another side of this argument. It's very well constructed. And I very much enjoy this episode. I hope you guys did too. I'll see you next time.